0: I, 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 I. We got I, fire from Cain. Now we ain't got no shame, so we started a pod. Chuck Yates needs
1: a job. Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates needs a job, the podcast special episode today. I have as my co-host. Literally the greatest research analyst Canada has ever known, Stacey McDonald. Thank you for co-hosting today. Thanks, Joe. So, Stacy, here's where we are. We've got $100 oil. We've got $7 natural gas. You can't find a lump of coal anywhere in the world. We've got a ground war in Europe over energy. Dogs and cats are sleeping together. Mass hysteria. What do we make of all this?
2: Okay. Thanks. Honestly, I think, you know, the chaos currently in the energy market is the result of a series of very poor policy decisions. Um, You know, it's not unique to one country. It's everywhere. It's in all aspects of the energy stack. So everyone here today on this podcast, um, we all work in some aspect of the energy business and we all love to provide our opinions on everything in armchair quarterback, what's going on. So I figured why don't we try to harness um what we perceive as being subject manager uh, subject matter experts let's see where we end up so what we're calling this is the energy policy draft um and see if you come up with anything constructive or practical so I'm, I'm going to hand it back to Chuck to, you can kind of explain the process
1: a little bit so we couldn't come up with a better name for the energy policy draft but think the NBA draft the NFL draft what we're going to do is we're going to go down the list of our various experts. We charge them with, you are energy czar of the world. Tell us an energy policy. We may get laughs. We may get serious thoughts. We may get a combination of both of them. But let's just see where uh, where this takes us. Hopefully, we will make the world a better place by the end of it. First on the clock is longtime energy veteran Mark Meyer. He's had a successful career as an investor, then moved into industry. He started off life as a as an engineer, so he is going to say an EMP guy by background, but very well versed in all of energy. Mark, you are on the clock with the first pick in the first annual
3: energy draft. All right. Thanks, Chuck. I was thinking NFL draft and I think back to some of the greats that I've seen play. Uh, I actually saw Bo Jackson play his last college game uh, and actually a loss to my alma mater, Texas A&M in the, in the Cotton Bowl. I won't say which year, but uh, my, my draft pick is probably the most versatile athlete on the board. It's probably also going to be the most predictable and that's natural gas. It is. I think in arguably the standard um, by which policy ought to be set, given all of the things that we've seen uh, come back to us here in this cycle of history, conflict, pandemic, uh, energy shortages, uh, squabbles over things that, um, uh, you know, have very little scientific perspective or understanding. And so along with that, I'd like to uh, like to propose a couple of things uh, as it relates to uh, the foundations of energy understanding. One is, I think there ought to be uh, compulsory basics of energy in our educational uh, curriculum. And then two, after watching uh, most recently the energy and commerce hearings, uh, if you can call them that, I think uh, there ought to be qualification tests for those who are at least driving the rhetoric around policy. And, and so if you think about natural gas as the standard, um, and speaking mostly from a, a NATO G7 North American standpoint, uh, the U.S. is fourth in uh, total global reserves. It would take a more than a quadrupling to overtake Russia as the number one reserves holder. We are the number one producer. Um, the, thread that is natural gas that runs through so much of our daily lives from power generation to transportation to uh, feedstocks for important things like fertilizer and manufacturing uh, of things like plastics i think make it a uh, really a perpetual uh, policy plank that is the centerpiece of uh, of all going forward at least for those that are uh, uh, that are part of the kind of the constituent alignment with, with North America, NATO,
1: and G7. So, Stacy, when we saw the experts opining on who would go first in the energy policy draft, I definitely think you had natural gas and potentially nuclear energy running one and two, two and one through that. What do we think of Mark's pick?
2: Well, first of all, I, I want to commend you on um, taking down the policymakers a bit, because ultimately, these problems fall in their lap. Um, I like to pick on huge natural gas bull. So the question is if we make natural gas, the kind of the backbone of, you know, the next phase of the whatever energy transition or driver of the economy, do you think that the politicians have um, enough like muster to actually say that fossil fuels are gonna be the next leg of this? Or do you think they double down and, and go with renewables more?
3: Well, I, I just think, given the poli- current political climate, the reality is uh, much more complex, and and there's a ton of inertia. But when you look at there, there's a there's a popular quote floating around in the battle of physics and platitudes, physics always wins. And so I think we see the the interdependency of so many things, including renewables and natural gas. You know, ultimately we get pushed into corners like we have been with the northeast energy crisis, with the European energy crisis. You know, natural gas is an athlete that can not only go north, south, it can go east, west, it can go for power, it can go for speed. And so um, it it, it ultimately has, uh, you know, a core place in whatever that next generation is. Once we get across the transition bridge, I don't like calling natural gas a bridge fuel. Because then investors start looking at, okay, what's you know what, what's my terminal value? Um, I, I just think that you know the until we displace the laws of physics and materials, then then we've got to ultimately accept natural gas. And being out in front of that um, fact of life, if you will, is a much better policy path than reacting to increasingly kind of ominous crises that we're facing here. I mean. Putin's weaponized natural gas for sure, um, those countries in the G7 and, and NATO that have great gas potential ought to weaponize their own, you know, bring don't, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Ah, uh, Aubrey
1: McClendon is smiling down from heaven at that pick. So with the second pick, Mark Rossano, CEO, C6 Capital Holdings, one of the smartest people I know, only because I don't know you that well. But you're on the clock with the number two pick.
4: Well, I love it. Thanks for uh, having me on. I, I have to say, I do love the uh, the uh, natural gas pick. And if you look at the the policy shift, they've dropped the term bridge. And I I always love how they play these little mind games. Like they're acting like they're being so clever. And and it, it is a flexible fuel. I I never thought it was a bridge fuel. It is a fuel of the future. And and I think that that is a huge piece, especially when you talk about solar. And all these fun things that need these little things called plastic that, that, that come from natural gas liquids, You know all these important things that come from the ground. But uh, to, to nobody's surprise, uh, I'm not funny. I won't try to be. Uh, I will be coming out with a nuclear call. Uh, so I do want to provide a little bit of backdrop on nuclear and nuke in general, because I, I don't think it's understood. I, I would agree on the physics comment. Especially with people and the way they view uh, the capacity that we can come from, you know some of the key things that I think are important are the micro reactors and the small modular reactors. You know everyone thinks of this big behemoth that has these big, gigantic uh, reactors, these big these big, huge pieces that need all this type of reinforcement and whatnot. But there is there's been a huge breakthrough with pebble reactors, other types of safety measures that have been pulled through. But if you look at nuclear and and the opportunities that it provides, you also have to appreciate how it's been changing. And we also need to appreciate what needs to be created. And one of those is HALU, which is high assay, low enriched uranium. And so everyone likes to talk about, oh, well, we're just going to go build nuke. It's like, okay, but what are the pieces that go into that and i think the halu is is something that really needs to be pushed and understood it allows for the smaller design but it also has these benefits for those that are going to push back on oh the waste and the and the and the core well it actually produces much less waste it has a much longer life uh, life expectancy and it increases underlying fuel efficiency so you're looking at things that inherently not only can shrink the design, but then also has a lot of the ancillary pieces because everyone always says, not in my backyard. So this is something that I think provides a, a very deployable opportunity. It can be anywhere from you know, upwards to about 300 megawatts, depending, uh, depending on how many of these uh, units are pieced together. Now, just because we have to talk about the uh, the fuel itself, Helu is a range between the 5% and 20%. Uh, of uranium 23, uh, 235. So when you look at the existing fleet, you're you're stopping at five percent. So that's the the main piece. So you really want to be able to enrich that. So not only do we have a a new uh, reactor in itself, but we would also create a whole new industry in terms of things that can be created. Now there's different ways to do it. You know there's there's and that could come into some other type of discussion. But realistically, when you're looking at, OK, I want to attack the environment, I want to bring things back under control, I want to shrink the GHG side of things, what is better than what our cleanest uh, uh, form of power is, which is the nuclear side. So that's where I'm going to go. I don't think it's surprising anyone in terms of uh, because if I didn't get uh, nuke, I was going with natural gas and uh, or propane. So uh, just uh, you know, moving with the board, if you will.
1: So, Stacy, Colin and I said the other day on the BDE podcast, it's too bad nuclear energy wasn't invented like yesterday, because we'd probably be running around going, ah, we've solved all our energy problems. What are we thinking of Mark's pick?
2: I just have a couple questions for Mark. So what's the cycle time on building these? And is it something industry can do or would it need more government backstop?
4: So it's a great question. And, and I think the biggest thing is that it can be industry done, uh, but it does need government backing to help build the HALU structure because you have to create and allow for this to be built. So you're going to have to have other types of enrichment centers that are going to be created. So there, it's kind of a, a two-handed, uh, two-headed handed 2 beast where you need the corporations, but you also need the government. Now, the other thing that the government has to do is reduce these little things. And again, I, I don't say reduce in the sense of, we're just going to throw these things up and not have inspectors come in to make sure that everything is built the way it's supposed to. It's just you have to streamline the red tape. You know, you can't have this red tape that just gets prolonged, and then all of a sudden, a facility that should have taken you eight, you know, two years to build is now in year eight, and you just got the permitting to build uh, to pour the cement foundation. So again, these are some of those key pieces. That Not that you're going to cut corners, but you're going to work hand in hand to really push that forward.
1: So I think uh, Joe Rogan made one of the best comments about nuclear energy. He was looking at all the issues, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, et cetera, all the baggage that comes with nuclear. And he said, when were all these facilities built? And they were all built in the 70s. And he always he said to that, he's like, did you drive a car built by the Americans during the 70s? They all suck." So we really shouldn't hold the fact that we were crappy as a country in the 70s against nuclear.
4: Well, and, and if you look at like Fujara and, and all these other things, like those were known flaws back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they have they have GE emails knowing that it's like, oh, it would take a 9.2 and greater earthquake. So the 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 chances are small. They are small. It took 40 some odd years for it to happen, but then it happened. So. Again, be cognizant of fault lines, You know where we are, where we're building, how we're building it. And there's, these are things that are life lessons that we've learned over time. And the reactors that have been built can be shut down quicker. They have more surface area because they're pebble reactors. There are things, then safety measures that have come in, not just on the infrastructure, but the actual reactor itself.
1: Gotcha. Mr. Sankey, you are on the clock, but first with the third pick, we have Kyrie Baker, who is currently a professor at Colorado University, formerly with the National Renewable Energy Lab. Kyrie, the weight of the world and energy is on your shoulders. Who are you taking with the third pick?
5: Thanks so much for having me. Um, SMR was actually one of my picks, but I do have a backup. Um, My pick is a little unconventional and it's not an energy technology, but it's a scale of energy technologies. So my pick is community level resources. So if we're thinking about resilience rather than cost, um, some of us think about making the transmission grid a lot more redundant. Some of us think about every house, having a chicken in every pot and EV and home battery system in every garage um but a lot of these costs with the smaller scale systems just aren't scalable for most consumers so we're going to get somewhere in between with the sweet spot where we're going to get some economies of scale with community scale solar community scale batteries cogen shared resources um but we're also going to get the resiliency aspect of being able to disconnect from the grid self sustain during a, the case of a major grid outage um so incentivizing DERs, distributed energy resources, I like to call them DERs because I think that they're a no-brainer. Um, it gets a little bit complicated when you have to share these resources, but you know, taking a look at the fact that utility-scale solars half the cost of rooftop residential PV, um, it really incentivizes it for a community. So it introduces a couple issues that I'm not going to ignore. One of them being, you know, my neighbor Carol. I've seen her simultaneously charge her EV, wash her clothes and cook dinner during peak hours. And I do not want to be uh, have her doing that with my community resources. Um, and I share a transformer with this woman. So people say you can't choose who your family is. You also can't choose who you share a transformer with sometimes. And so transformers at the distribution level, one of the biggest bottlenecks for you know plugging in my EV, electrifying my house, keeping microgrids stable just gets harder when you have more consumption. So that's my pick. Um, I think there's a lot of benefit to it. There's a lot of challenges to be overcome, but I think that we could work together and get there.
1: Stacey, what's your thought?
5: I mean,
2: it's, it's very interesting. Do you think that the first way to kind of prove that this would work would be like a pilot project in the community? Or how do you kind of see a first step in rolling this out?
5: Pilot project would be good. I also think automating it is necessary. I don't think that humans are ever going to be, you know, consciously adjusting thermostat set points, choosing when they do things at such a granularity, but matching supply and demand to keep the AC frequency at 60 Hertz is extremely challenging, especially when you get down to that small scale where you don't have too many controllable resources. At the transmission scale, it's easier. You have these large plants that can balance out frequency. Everything's kind of connected. There's a lot of inertia, but It just gets to be a hard engineering problem. So automation, pilot projects, testing it in communities where um, you are connected to the grid to begin with.
1: So Kyrie, back when oil hit $12 a barrel in the late 90s, I went from being an oil and gas guy to a power technology guy, which meant I ran around and looked at distributed generation and everything you just said, we could have said back in the late 90s. And in fact, an energy veteran family friend said you could have said that in the 70s as well. One of the biggest issues was the owners of the grid, whoever they were, utilities, nonprofits, threw up their hands and said, we can't have distributed generation assets connecting to our grid because it'll bring our grid down. I always felt like the science and the engineering could overcome that and that that was just protecting turf type stuff. But is that still an issue? And is it really an issue?
5: A lot less of an issue now. Um, there's a bunch of IEEE standards that have come out for inverters that basically prevent them from, you know, causing voltage spikes and frequency issues, harmonics. So the technologies have advanced a lot, and the cost has also dropped a lot. So in the 70s, I wouldn't have really said microgrids make sense, except maybe for you know, like military bases or applications where you need. To be cyber secure and physically separated,, um, but now they're making a lot more sense.
1: Gotcha. All right, little unexpected pick. Didn't see that one coming at number three? Maybe a little bit of a reach here in the draft. Now with pick number four, literally the greatest research analyst in energy that America has known, Paul Sankey. Paul. I'm on the, the same cool as Rosano, mate. You want
6: to be careful. What you're
1: um, <laughs> the one thing I will say is when I laid out the uh, backdrop for this, telling everybody your energies are, you did ping me back saying, "I know I am.
6: You don't have to tell me." That's also actually Paul. Not, that's true, Chuck. But hey, Paul, um, who's
1: number four?
6: Well, I think that the big mistake that I see in energy policy is always attacking the supply side. And I just see it, you know, time and time again, right down to, you know, the infuriating uh, environmentalists trying to stop gas pipeline side of thing. And, you know, what I always say to people is what these big oil companies fear most of all is, is demand and demand uh, changes. You know, that's what really causes them huge nightmares in terms of where we go next. And in general, everything that we look at and is underanalyzed is the demand side. Uh, so as Energy Star, what I would do is um, is gasoline tax. I would address the U.S. gasoline tax. I totally agree with this, the, the other ideas that, that we've heard so far, particularly regarding natural gas and particularly regarding small-scale nuclear, in fact, anything we can do. But I do think that the really obvious issue is that, um, you know, the gasoline tax in the U.S. has been too low because it's politically unpalatable uh, for either side to change it, even though you have, you know, the Democrats coming on a very strong environmental agenda, you won't see any mention of, of addressing what's the most obvious differentiation in US energy pricing against the world, which is you don't fully charge for the full cost of gasoline. And the story I tell is that I was um, testifying on gasoline prices to the Senate back in the 2000s. And I said to them, I've calculated that you need a $2 gasoline tax per gallon to pay for the Iraq war. And they were like, "Please just don't. You know, please just do not go there on that." But it was a trillion dollar cost, and arguably, a a, you know, war about oil. And if you look at where we use our oil, we're far more disproportionately using gasoline than any other major economy in the world uh, at a far lower price with much more inefficient cars. Um, I I didn't start my clock, uh, shucks. So you have to stop me at three minutes. Okay. So basically. The gasoline tax in the U.S. was last raised in 1993. Has not been inflation-adjusted, and um, you know now represents just about five percent of the gallon of gas. In Europe, the equivalent level is about sixty percent. Now, I'm not saying that you know we need to, to 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 go to European levels because of the nature of the U.S. and and the way people like to to live, but I do think that it's just politically. Uh, Unpalatable is the word I've been using to to put in a gasoline tax. And if I had the kind of power that you're talking about, one idea I've had is that you would uh, regress the tax. So essentially, when gasoline prices fall next time around, when we're next at forty dollars a barrel, you would you would stop the price going below you know three dollars at the pump by increasing the federal tax. And you know essentially that would also take the volatility out of gas prices because if you look at gas's share of American consumers' wallets. It's actually not that high now compared to history. Uh, The the issue is actually sticker shock. So if you reduce the volatility, that would actually be helpful to people in planning their lives and planning the kind of car they buy, everything else. And you see major shifts in US behavior regarding gasoline prices. We had forecast uh, EVs and and, uh, hybrids in 2009 to take a huge part of the US vehicle market by 2020, But the downturn in gasoline prices uh, in the middle of the decade saw an enormous upsurge in SUVs for sale. And I used to play a game with my son, which was, let's count how many pickups have something in the back. And it was consistently about 80% of pickups just don't have anything in the back. You don't need a pickup. It's purely a, a fun vehicle to drive as opposed to a necessity. If you become more efficient in gasoline and getting from A to B, there's no economic loss. You know the fact of the matter is you still get from A to B. You just did it in a more efficient manner. So uh, I'm gonna go for the gasoline tax that Chuck and Stacy, and thanks for having me on. And we got some spare time. St- Stacy, uh, on the bingo
1: board this morning, I did not have higher gasoline taxes as being one of the picks. What do you think?
2: I, it's definitely interesting. It kind of veering close to a carbon tax, but not not quite. I yeah, guess I,
6: support, would, I support carbon tax as well, Stacey, but that I would, um, is a step I to would, I would sorry, ask no, things.
2: Um, One, two things to address. One, uh, this would be very aggressive on low income people. So, how do you deal with that? And two, what would the government do with the massive amount of proceeds from the gasoline tax?
6: Yeah, on one, I think that's why I'm suggesting that we would stop prices falling. Um, but I hear you. It, it is gasoline tax is regressive, and there's not not a lot you can do about that in terms of it. It does disproportionately uh, punish poor people in in the way that so many other you know supply side type attacks you know have, have have had a similar effect, where where people are trying to reduce the supply of energy, which obviously you know disproportionately affects poor people. The other one that's crazy is the California solar system, right, where you pay rich people. A generous price to have solar panels that poor people can't access, and in fact they've tried to address this, and the solar industry has fought back furiously in the past six months to prevent a more market correct uh, price of, of, you know, the cost of solar effectively, because it does disproportionately affect poor people to have so many rich people being, you know, subsidised with either a Tesla or a solar panel or both. So I hear you on that one, and it's sort of unavoidable in terms of the uh, in terms of the spend, you know. The deficit's pretty massive. I, you know, I don't really. If I was to to support an idea, it's definitely gas pipelines and facilitating better pipeline infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, if I was to go after the supply side, um, potentially, I do think that you know U.S. infrastructure. I do agree with the, the Biden administration and the, and most of Congress that we need to upgrade the infrastructure. When you look at uh, China, and if I'm going for it, I'm going to build high speed high speed trains. I'm gonna use the money for high speed trains.
2: Yeah. I mean, you could also rebate a portion of it back to people that are super low income, rates right? Because they're still incentivized to lower their gasoline usage even with the rebate because they've got to keep more of it. So that's just something to think about.
1: Uh, here in the United States, every dollar we get, we'll just use to pay interest on the debt. You know, that's that's kind of seems to be our jam. Sure. Uh, All right, with the fifth pick in the energy policy draft, we have Team Rory Johnson. Rory is the author of the Commodity Context uh, newsletter that's on Substack and a former bank economist. So, Rory, you're now energy czar. You've heard who other people have picked. With the fifth pick, what
7: are you doing on energy? Thanks so much for having me, and, and just to, uh, you know, everyone else has had fantastic ideas. I particularly loved uh, Paul's comment around the kind of a scalable gasoline tax. That was actually my very close to my backup, so very happy I didn't have to go to it. Uh, but if I was energy czar and I was able to do anything completely kind of fresh from scratch, I would, I would take a relook at the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, and mirror the policy more broadly globally. Um, so people love to hate on the SPR, and I think, you know, reasonably so, because most of the time the SPR, particularly recently, has been used, it's to kind of lean against very organic structural price increases, like we saw from the Biden administration at the end of last year, um, which not only doesn't really help matters, but actively could make things worse by reducing the price signal to, you know, that, we, that should be bringing on more um, more supply to actually solve that structural deficit. Uh, how I would restructure it is I'd, I'd restructure it, yeah, the SPR to actually make it a more expert, active uh, participant in the market um, with, with the intended uh, policy goal of reducing uh, price volatility and increasing the effective signal, particularly to US shale producers down the curve. So the reason we're going to see volatility higher, uh, obviously, we're seeing volatility you know, massively higher today. I think that's only going to continue to get worse over time as you have the uncertainty kind of ripple through investment intentions and the kind of policy chaos that we're seeing on the demand and the supply side. Um, Also on that, you know, the traditional uh, volatility, you know, softener or dampener in the market, uh, OPEC and particularly Saudi Arabia has very much over the last couple of years, and I think most acutely this year, very much stepped back and relinquished kind of an active role um, you can argue about why that's happened, but I think the most kind of, a, you know, approximate likely cause would be Mohammed bin Salman taking a larger and larger kind of control over the commanding heights of the Saudi state, uh, both military and Aramco, and kind of politicizing uh, SPR, sorry, politicizing supply uh, changes and production changes in a way that we just haven't seen historically from a much more technocratic, almost deferential um, kind of OPEC and, and Saudi state. So I think when you think about the way that the SPR could operate, I think we saw the shadow of good policy with this latest and, and the largest ever SPR release. There was talk about a floor price that would be supported by refilling the SPR. But I think you go one step forward uh, and basically say that anytime you, you, uh, you sell a barrel from the SPR, you on some kind of go forward basis in the futures market directly contract uh, to refill that space. So not only are you Reducing the the prompt price, you're lifting the kind of you know middle or back of the curve, uh, and therefore increasing the effective signal to producers that are looking to hedge uh, with those prices. The same thing could happen on the other side, and again, this is where reducing and removing the political side is so important. Uh, the fact that the S P R did not buy into the wildly you know super contangoed market of you know early 2020 uh, because of political pushback for filling at that time, I think. You know, is is a no brainer. It should be able to step in those in those moments, uh, fill up what capacity is there, so that it can be used for other policy purposes down the line. Um, So you know, whether or not you want to create like a Taylor rule or something central banky, like saying you know only only you can think of it intervening when you know the uh the contango or backwardation is in the you know highest kind of five percent of the distribution on either side, whichever way you want to you frame it. I think it allows for uh, using the SPR in a way that actually affects uh, positively the price signal uh, that, that we want to be going to producers.
1: So Stacy, this is interesting. I didn't think the fuck you Saudi Arabia policy was gonna fall to the fifth pick. I thought it'd come off <laughs> the board earlier. What are we thinking there?
2: I like the idea. So a couple of questions. Um, one, industry people are almost all optimists on price politicians are optimists the other way. They always think the oil price is going to be lower. So when you talk about filling a panel with expert people, I mean, you've kind of got two groups that neither of those should be in charge. So who would you, what are the types of people? Is it people like Roy Johnson that are on there? What are the types that sit on this this panel?
7: Well, as energy czar, I would want to be on that (laughs) panel myself. But I would say more generally, I think the idea isn't necessarily even to target, um, you know, know, I, I think you could have uh, a happy, you know, uh, you know, fallout of this being a profitable uh, kind of trade and kind of being able to subsidize the functioning and structure of the SPR running itself. But I think more importantly, it's specifically to to act counter curve, and I think that's why you have policy frameworks like what I mentioned about, you know, only the fi- you know top five percent or bottom five percent of kind of backwardated or contangoed markets, uh, so that you basically the goal is to operate like commercial inventory, but at the extremes. And, and, and so you don't lean into normal backwardation or normal category. let commercial markets deal with that. But in those extreme moments have, have a group of people that are willing uh, and knowledgeable enough to know why this is important to lean in at this particular time.
1: Uh, Stacey, I do think Jeff Skilling is available these days and, uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, Corey, one last question. Would you, the last two SPR releases, if you were Energy Czar, would you have done both of them or neither of them or just one of them? What would you have done?
7: So the one at the, I think it was the 50 million barrels at the end, you know, at the end of 2021, I certainly wouldn't have done. I think that was probably one of the most glaring examples of bad SPR policy, just like, oh, oil prices are high. Woe is me. Let's release some SPR. That's bad policy. I think the latest, uh, you know, massive release Again, there is framing and there have been quotes of people involved in knowledgeable policies that they are thinking about refilling it. But I think the fact that they've kind of adopted a just trust us, we'll do it is not sufficient. I think you need to actually go into the market and send that signal directly.
1: Interesting. Well, guys, we have two picks left. And so just kind of as a as a little bit of a preview, we'll do these last two picks and then we'll come to everybody for kind of a closing statement. So think kind of a 30-second-minute closing statement to have. But now on the clock with the sixth pick, Mr. Hot Take of the Day, David Ramson Wood, who appears to be on a golf course, which is awesome, as you should be. You are now. Not putting, not chipping. Your energies are. What are we doing to save the planet? Oh no,
8: I, I got to tell you, I am probably the best conference call golfer in human history. Um, when we were selling One Energy, I was on a lot of good, uh, conference calls with uh, with Jeffries and, and buyers while on the golf course, and it just turns your brain off. So I highly recommend it. Although the playing partners don't love it that much, um, I'm actually really excited, and I don't think that this comes as a surprise. Whether I was number one pick or whether I was the number six pick, I was taking coal. The reason I'm taking coal is because I truly believe that for the Mm -hmm. the political elements of the conversation are so driven around climate change and CO2, my biggest concern is scarcity. At some point in the next thousand years, we run out of energy. And at that point, no one is going to care whether it comes from coal or water or hydro. And maybe technology is better, and maybe it's not. But coal is a real thing. Coal is the the oldest energy form. It is one of the things that propelled us out of the Industrial Revolution to where we are today. It's consistent. It's clean. In 2020, there were 350 coal plants being built around the world. Today, I believe China is building 45. It's going nowhere, and you notice that Greta Thunberg didn't spend any time in China when she was doing her boat trip around the world because they don't care about net zero. I would say, uh, and I know that there's a family-friendly podcast, but their net zero goal is they give net zero fucks about CO2. And I don't care about CO2. We will adapt as a planet. We have 110 million people currently living below sea level, including one of the greatest towns on earth, New Orleans, but there is no reason you should rebuild that town. Buildings have a useful life of 50 years. So in 2100, if sea level goes three millimeters a year, in 80 years, it's up maybe a foot, but we can rebuild the buildings that are gonna collapse half a mile inland and it's gonna be totally good. So I was glad it was still on the board. I'm totally taking coal for the win. And I'm excited about China's energy policy because we export all of our production, all of our manufacturing, all of our trade to China to build our stuff anyway. So, uh, yeah, they should keep going hard in
1: coal. And I love coal. Confirming his status as the Al Davis of the energy policy draft. Um, Stacy. I don't know what to make of it. Words escape me.
2: I think one thing that's interesting is, I mean, there's obviously a strategic advantage to having low energy input costs for economies just in general. So, do you see coal playing into that, especially for the American economy? That you know, you can help some of those manufacturing jobs if we lower our our energy costs. Is that part of it?
8: I I think so, and and I would also go as far as to talk about Diablo Canyon because I love the nuclear went number two, Um, but the Comanche coal plant in Colorado, along with five others, in order for Colorado to get to its net 85% 85% of the electric grid is, is carbon-free by 2030. They're literally spending a billion dollars to decommission coal plants that have 60 years worth of life left. And so maybe I'm not rebuilding coal plants, but I'm certainly not dismantling them. I'm not dismantling Indian Point. I'm not dismantling Diablo Canyon. Um, and so, yeah, energy cost is a thing, but we also have a tremendous number of coal plants. In Texas, going into the polar vortex, we got rid of 20 coal plants so we didn't even have the backup element, and there was no reason to get rid of them. So number one, yes, it's cheap energy; that's good for American jobs. But number two, we already have them, and in a scarce world, why destroy something that already works?
4: So I, I you know, I, I know that Drw would quickly uh, put me as his assistant czar. So as the assistant czar, I, I, I want to comment on this because I, I actually think it's a good pick. Uh, there's, there is a lot of technology that is now available that would actually take away a significant amount of the polluting aspect of coal. So if you think about the rate base, you're charging the rate base to tear down that facility, then you're charging the rate base to replace it with something that may not be, uh, that may be intermitted at best. So you could create essentially a natural ecosystem with what is captured from flue gas, yeah, uh, into anything from hydrogen to other types of industrial gases. I think that brings back some of the points that Kyrie brought up, which I think are fantastic in terms of regional grids and the ability to do that and to have some of that layered in where you where you protect some of that coal, but at the same time you layer in some of the regional side because microgrids become an issue when you think about rate base because you when you look at and he's teeing off. I love it. So when you think about the actual rate base, the microgrids can be very expensive, so it becomes an underlying problem. Now, to Paul's point, on uh, you know, the one thing as as the assistant czar or the czar, I would have to decay all of the the, uh, the high-speed rail. Ultra-high-voltage electricity lines are super expensive, completely inefficient, and has been a waste of money for China. Uh, so it's fun to watch them absolutely uh, utterly destroy their economy by building things that make no sense, but I will cut it off there. So, Kyrie, did you laugh love- at
1: DRW for teeing off, or were you throwing up in your mouth at the mention of coal? I couldn't tell.
5: I guess a little bit bu- <laughs> of bu- No, I'm just surprised that coal is a pick, I guess. I thought coal you- was with, with like CCUS or something. Could you? Write it right
2: no. Around?
8: So, I, 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 if I could just weigh in for a second, look, um, and I know everyone gets mad at me when I go to COVID, but COVID is climate change. It's a policy picked by government to terrify everybody, and they do not allow discussion. And I think the Steve Coonan episode on Joe Rogan was an excellent conversation around CO2. And I think we need to actually have real conversation. Is CO2 a problem? Yes or no? And is the world heating up three degrees a problem? I'm not convinced. If I was Justin Trudeau, other than obviously coloring myself black, face of just owning that shit because that guy like stopped walking away from the stuff you did. You know what I mean? Um, but I would ask for more coal in the world because Canada would be a much better place if it was three degrees warm. And quite frankly, my calculation is that there will be 195 million people on planet Earth that die this summer because they don't have food. And that's using the Ethiopian famine from 1983, where 1 million out of 40 million died. And we are not going to have enough food. And yet we continue to use corn in ethanol and 40% of the US coal produ- uh, corn production goes into to making ethanol instead of food. So we're gonna lose 195 million people. And so we can all move a little bit further north. It's gonna be a little warmer. We're gonna have a more hospitable place. And Canada is going to be a party town in the winter. So I'm all about coal. I'm all about global warming if we can. Like let's go five degrees and let's have that debate instead of censoring people online who say that and say, you're a crazy person. I'm not convinced. That a warming planet is not a better planet.
2: It's a unique view. Uh, well,
6: I, had, I, had I had dinner the other night with Kunin, and, and two days later, I had Alex Epstein. It sounds like Alex Epstein's argument, actually. Um, Kunin's very impressive, and, and he's just saying it's unsettled. Obviously, that's the title of his book. Um, he has some pretty radical geoengineering, called cool geoengineering, you know. Uh, spraying stuff into the atmosphere type approaches, but the the argument that it'll actually be a, a more tropical better planet with global warming is is very much part of epstein's thesis actually, um, and that you know millions of people will die if you continue down the path of um, of trying to reduce energy in such an inefficient amount in energy use in such an inefficient manner as we are at the moment yeah no I've, there's also a train of thought too that. That the
1: effect of CO2 diminishes with more of it, as opposed to that's the an
6: argument, now.
1: yeah. That we've seen so far. So, the last pick in the energy policy draft a great energy investor here in the United States, Brad Olson of Recurrent, and arguably the greatest. Cleanup hitter, since you're having to go last since Easy E sang the final verse of straight out of Compton. Brad, you're on the clock as the energies are. You've heard all this. What are you doing to save the planet? Thanks, Chuck. Yeah,
0: I am uh let, let me see if I can channel my my spirit animal here without um only you can share. I was going to share a picture of Matthew Lesko, who many of you probably remember as the Uncle Sam gives you free money infomercial guy from the 90s. And uh, the reason I'm channeling Matthew Lesko is, and I'm sure everyone on this call will hate this idea, maybe even more than some sort of greeny idea or uh, by the way, DRW, I, I, I loved your idea. I, I mean, I love the approach to coal, but I might, uh, I might, elicit more disgust from the audience than than any pick so far, because my pick involves free government money, moral hazard, increased debt leverage, and an annoying bureaucratic acronym. It is the toxic asset relief program for the energy sector. Uh, Many of you probably remember back in 2008, Timothy Geithner, As as we were coming out of, of the worst of the financial crisis, he suggested that the government basically provide free leverage to hedge funds so that hedge funds could buy the CDOs and the mortgage assets that nobody wanted to touch. Now, obviously, mortgage assets in early 2009 had expected returns that were astronomical, even if you assumed huge failure and huge default rates on these assets. And yet, the government wasn't happy with the recovery in the asset market, so they threw free money at hedge funds so that the rich could get richer. All the bad stuff we talk about, uh, you know, basically transpired on the back of free government leverage. Well, I can say, cause I, I spend a lot of my time fundraising that if you look at on a fundamental analysis after high oil prices, the only explanatory variable for CapEx and drilling activity that matters Is valuation multiples on energy stocks. We've already got the high oil prices and we don't have capex. So the only remaining explanatory variable is the valuations on public companies and energy stocks in general. They're not going to drill as long as their valuations remain in the tank. It's not that bad CEOs are now good CEOs. It's not that the profligate CEOs are now, you know, uh, are now. you know, sober as a judge, what it comes down to is, if the market is giving you less than 100 cents on the dollar, you're not going to expand your asset base. Uh, it, it's much more effective to just give people money back from your cash flow yield, than reinvested in a business that the market uh, values at a discount. So these are toxic assets, I can tell you that endowments who totally understand the math, they understand the supernormal profitability of the energy sector, Pensions, endowments—they know how much money this sector is making. They know how good the returns are going to be. They still have no interest in owning it. And so, when you have this chicken and egg problem in the capital markets, like you did in 2008 and 2009 with mortgages, you need to just throw some free government money in there as the spark that that gets the cycle moving again. And and you know, I I think again, I'm I'm not a technical guy. I'm a dumb finance guy. I can only bring the big picture to bear and. The only explanatory variable left is terrible valuations that discourage CEOs from drilling. You're not going to unwind all the terrible regulatory decisions. You're not going to unwind all the terrible subsidies that have gotten in the way of, you know, mining more coal, building more nuclear plants. None of that stuff is really fixable in the near term. Free money is something our government is very good at, has a lot of experience handing out. And it's the thing that I think would accelerate the drilling of, of new hydrocarbons and bring the average cost per BTU of the energy we consume down uh, without really having to do a whole lot with, uh, you know, the Environmental Protection Act or any of the you know,
1: regulatory hurdles that have held up the industry. You know, if this energy investing thing doesn't work out, you have a real future as a casino floor host cheap drink <laughs> cheap drinks and and free debt <laughs> Stacy no, I love that face you're making right now lay lay it on him
2: So you're talking about providing free capex money
0: So basically the way the plan worked with the mortgages mortgages were paying out you know huge returns based on their their prices in 08 and 09 but nobody was buying them cuz they were still worried about a double dip in the economy and so the government basically said we will provide you know for every dollar you for every dollar of mortgages you buy we will provide you 50 cents of effectively risk free leverage if the mortgages go bust the government takes the loss on the first 50 cents if things take off you know you have a leverage bet on an asset class which is almost certain to make a ton of money in the next few years and as much as it made everyone go crazy and all the hard money inflationistas went nuts, most of whom have have now found a home in the energy space for the last 10 years, the reality is it worked, right? It got got capital off the sidelines. It allowed a lot more dollars to chase mortgages back and getting the cost of borrowing down led people to start buying homes again. And very similarly right now, the, the drilling CapEx might make money even without a subsidy, but your average investor is still not coming back to the space. Your active investor, your, your pension, your endowment is still not coming back to the space. And so government can kind of plug the hole and be the first guy to cannonball into the pool in the absence of uh, a more robust kind of institutional investor response.
2: Wouldn't this just end up being a wealth transfer to service companies?
0: You know, it, it's that's a great question. I think, you know, again, when, when I look back and I, I ran a, a fairly lazy like 30 year bloomberg uh correlation of if we're looking for the cheapest uh dollar per BTU um for for the end consumer what's the recipe for that and high valuations across the energy sector has historically led to a bunch of capex and as we learned over the last 10 years even as commodity prices are falling if the capital markets remain open, drilling continues, right? And I think it's a very good question about, what, initially, I think the OFS market will capture a lot of this economic upside, but the reality is that to respond to the current energy crisis, the OFS sector needs to be a lot bigger. They need to make supernormal profits in order to get to a size that can accommodate the energy response that physically the world needs out of North America. So, just the same way that everyone hated uh, in 08 and 09, the idea that mortgage speculators would would get hit with a free bag of money. Um, it's, it's moral hazard. It makes some people's stomach churn, but it works. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of and it, it cuts through a lot of the regulatory and technical complexities. And some people will definitely get rich on it, but they'll get rich
1: making energy cheaper for the rest of the world. And there we have it. Um everybody, this was really uh, cool for uh, you guys to join and uh, to participate. Why don't we do this? We got three minutes left, two minutes left. Everybody have a final statement here, 30 seconds or, uh, or less. Make fun of somebody else's pick. Make fun of your own pick. Make fun of Brad's pick. I, you know, However you want to go, we'll do it in the same order we drafted. Mark, how do you want to close?
3: First of all, great picks. Um, there, there's nothing I think that's been unturned, uh, no stone left unturned on the supply and the demand side. I'm thankful Paul brought in the demand side because, as a former analyst, it usually is the vastly under scrutinized uh, dimension. You know, I would just say that we need to look at this in terms of short, medium, and long cycle type investments. And my pick was, I guess, decidedly the most. Uh, viable from a short cycle investment perspective. I saw somebody posted that uh, climate envoy John Kerry just said that, um, you know, the resurgence of natural gas here on the world stage has caused a a temporary pause in climate progress. I I would just point to the U.S.'s 20 year track record as uh, indisputable evidence of what uh, natural gas substitution can do uh, and will continue to play both offense and defense. And so I, I think I'll just leave it there.
1: Mark sonnet.
4: I, I like the uh, the free money for all. That did, did, <laughs> did not see that one coming as the five year and and seven year uh, surge over three percent, and is now above the thirty year. So it's just when when you look at it, it's an it's an interesting move. You know, one of the things that we saw with with the Fed and on the MBS side or the mortgage backed securities, you know, it's interesting to create that toxic fund. You know, something that would would free up capital. Cause one of the biggest constraints that we have right now for for anybody that's in the OFS space is seeing, you know, your inability to get pipe. If you can get pipe, you know, good luck paying for it. You know, what does that look like? Labor. And and the problem that we have when you start talking about coal and and natural gas, you know, if you don't believe there's a future in it. Well then, why are you going to go get employed by those guys? Like I, you know, why? So now all of a sudden we need the labor, and it's like good luck getting it. You know, you need the equipment, get in line, and, and that's I think where you're seeing some of the near term because some of the things that we've talked about, especially on the nuclear side, is a very much of a long term trajectory. Something that would take time to build out, but you do need uh, a certain amount of uh, of that back, uh, backstop. So I think when you look at coal, and I would take that to the next level and look at the ability to uh, clean it up with different types of scrubbers and other ways to capture the flue gas, and then uh, and then just just use that power to just start papering the world like Brad wants because I, I love
1: it. <laughs> the uh, the Weimar Republic is smiling down from heaven as well. Kyrie, what do you think?
5: Uh, All very interesting picks. I guess I want (laughs) to reinforce the don't discount the little guy's uh, energy infrastructure because we could have infinite gigawatts at the transmission scale. But a tree blew into my power line the other day and we were without power for 36 hours during really cold temperatures. So really, really uh, need to also think about local resilience and distributed resources.
6: Mr. Sankey. Yeah, I mean, I hear you on clean coal, but I just don't agree on coal. I, I, I think, you know, I often tell the story of how 20 years ago, when we had little kids, I said to my ex-wife, you know, just buy organic every time, because if we keep buying organic, eventually it will become cheaper and, you know, more widespread. And it, essentially, that's what Europe was trying to do with this disastrous disastrous energy policy. That, which they're already the, the most efficient major economy after Japan, but they were trying to lead the way to a lower carbon future, which is a good thing, and they screwed it up completely. But the reality is, they were trying to do the right thing, and now they've got to kind of reset it. But I, this whole regression back into hey, let's use more coal—I I just think it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. So, um, you know, that would be that would be one issue I had. And what, what did you just talk about? I was going to say something about what you just said. Uh, micro generation, or, or no, 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 marks one. Um, Oh yeah, clean call. Clean call is fine, sure. I kind of completely forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, well, let's just leave it. It was about
4: papering the town, where uh, Brad just wants to just pull a Bernanke and just well, actually, just gun it was, over. I was I, no, sneakily, I was talking about the five year and the seven year over uh, I was, over the 30 year.
6: I, I was sneakily uh, messaging Brad, and and he he did he did say that he had had his ideas taken, <laughs> so he's having to come come up with something a bit more radical. But the big one is always the energy efficiency side, and and you know just use less on the energy side, and and you have the same. If you're more efficient, you have the same economic outcome, right? So you don't need to just use a ton of energy, as I say, as an example, to get from A to B when you can actually do it in a more efficient manner, and the economy benefits. So uh, yeah, the demand side is what's underanalyzed and what's need what really needs to be addressed.
1: I blame myself for Brad's pick, comparing him to Eze, a former drug dealer who gave away free crack to uh, build a, he, he, he build, had a build some
6: speech. clients. He had a great speech about higher gasoline taxes, you know. But.
7: <laughs> exactly, Rory. Final thoughts. Uh, thanks. Uh, all interesting ideas. Um, I probably would echo some of the thoughts of some others that I'm not totally on board with any with the revitalization of the coal industry. I think we can move forward from there. But um, one thing I think that uh, um, my policy, and again, that uh, Paul's that I really liked was I, I think one of the big defining features of the of the energy markets you know over the next decade as we kind of go through this attempted transition is going to be radical volatility. And I think that it's it's volatility that policymakers and politicians in particular are going to be very ill-suited to lean against. I think the better we can do now to thoughtfully build out policies and structures that automatically modulate to kind of Price and market realities, whether that be, you know, an SPR that can lean against spot, you know, crisis, uh, spot market crises, or uh, gasoline tax that puts an effective floor. And kind of, again, to the Paul's point about sticker shock and the kind of variability being the big driver right now, I think it's really important. I think uh, policies that do that, I think are going to um, both lessen the harm economically that the transition is going to cause, but also I think Um, you know, uh, buttress the political backstop against the kind of necessary transition.
1: All right, DRW, you're taking flack for your coal pick. Any final thoughts?
8: Yeah, the the thing I would just say, uh, first of all, the ideas are phenomenal. um, And I totally agree. You can't always talk about supply, we need to talk about demand and personal choice. And so I always laugh at the climate activists that have Amazon Prime deliver 17 times a day to their house. And I've noticed that Jeff Bezos, Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, still has a $500 million yacht that uses the same carbon footprint as, I think, 2,000 people a year. And so nobody actually cares about CO2. They only care about money. And if we want to actually care about people, we need to provide them energy all forms of energy and we need to stop distorting markets example i use wind and solar were not discussed here because they're intermittent and because they're subsidized all subsidies for all energy should go away entirely and i'm not talking about accelerated depreciation let the market work and i'll, I'll close with my comment on COVID. had people just been allowed to do what they did March 8th in Denver, people stopped going to the Colorado Avalanche games because they were afraid. A third of people weren't afraid. Two thirds were. And had we had no mandates, had we had no mask mandates, no vaccine mandates, no intervention by government at all, people would have come out of their homes when they felt it was appropriate because everyone's personal self-interest is the most important part and defining feature of their life. We need to do the same with energy. Do less. Be better, let the market take care of itself and stop distorting it with horrific energy policies that will create a crisis that will kill hundreds of millions of people this summer because of the lack of food and the lack of energy. So that's my closing comment. Yeah.
4: And, and one of the, th- so, I mean, if I was able to draft multiple, it, it would be propane and flue gas technology because I think the misconception here is that it can only go on, on coal plants because flue gas technology can go on any plant. And it creates a lot of the back-end products from nitrogen, which we've talked about in terms of shortages. It can be a key component to the hydrogen solution in terms of making localized hydrogen plants. So I do think that there is a value in terms of adopting that and retrofitting coal facilities. And then at the same time, also doing that to other industrial uh, components from then on. Because we always talk about this, but again, this is a real solution. And with free money that Brad's thrown at me, I can easily make money off of it, which I'm going to be happy about. Brad, bring us home.
1: Final uh, thoughts.
0: Yeah, look, I I've really enjoyed listening to everyone. Um, you know, I think the thing I always have struggled with with demand, uh, moderating demand, is you're making some other gas guzzlers' energy cheaper, right? Uh, you know, the U.S. has done an amazing job reducing coal consumption. And we've really allowed the rest of the world to accelerate their coal consumption. So there is even within, you know, demand reduction and efficiency gains, there is another side of that, which is making energy, which may not be clean energy, cheaper for somebody else who's probably going to use it in a less environmentally strict way. And so you know, every everything that's been brought up has its upside and its downside. The one thing that I would just mention, and, you know, maybe I'm bitter coming directly off a of fundraising tour, talking to endowments, is the calls for capital discipline, uh, which were very healthy uh, in terms of their reaction to a period of profligate shale spending and capital destruction, have now basically turned into cheering on a sector that is You know, strangling the supply of energy to the rest of the world. And I I don't blame the CEOs. Like I understand they're responding to the world as as they see it. But in a world where every year billions of dollars are kind of passively flowing out of this sector for ESG and and other issues, you know, buybacks are a nice first step in terms of where does the capital come from, but buybacks strangle capex. So if there's going to be a capital provider to the space beyond just you know companies buying back their own stock, there needs to be a new participant in financing this industry, and beyond that, you know natural gas coal nukes they're all great ideas, but you know why haven't they prospered and flourished in in the kind of existing capital market environment that we've seen over the last five and ten years and bad incentives and a constantly shrinking capital market you know are things that I think we all need to think about so great ideas i wouldn't mind some more coal but frankly when i talk to coal companies they have very legitimate reasons that you know their buyers will not give them long term deals cuz their buyers can't get debt financing if they don't commit to phasing out coal right so the market which we view as always the answer to everything uh you know what it makes me think of is you know the calls coming from inside the house like the market in this case is part of the problem strangling energy supply and so uh, you know the energy the market's always you know it's it's better than all the other alternatives to paraphrase Winston Churchill but right now it's not getting us enough energy to to face
1: you know the current set of challenges all right stacy close us out
2: i like i liked all the ideas they were actually very interesting some of them came out of nowhere um, you know if i had to pick i'm going to talk my own book so i'm totally biased here so i'm going to go with natural gas and I liked Paul's idea on on gas taxes being higher. I just don't think the politicians have the balls to do it. So good in theory, I just don't think I don't think they I don't think they could do it.
1: I still think if we could harness the sexual tension between Mark Meyer and Paul Sankey that I felt on this call, we'd solve all our energy problems. Hey, thanks everybody for doing this. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon.